I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McCullen, coming to you on an inversion-y spring morning in the mountains of Utah. A quick reminder that as of recording, we are less than two and a half months away from the launch of In the Shadow of Lightning. This is a brand new epic fantasy from yours truly, in which we follow a failed prodigy whose mother's murder forces him to return to the cutthroat machinations of the world's greatest empire and discover that the magic upon which the world depends is running out. Get your pre-orders in. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is fantasy author Naomi Novik. Naomi is best known for her massively successful Temeraire series, in which dragons fight in the Napoleonic Wars, and was, as I recount in the episode, an early inspiration for my own writing. She's also written the Sholomance trilogy, standalone novels Uprooted and Spinning Silver, and a host of short fiction. Naomi and I talk about international travel and attending conventions, Naomi's love of fan fiction, her early work in video games, and writing characters, including non-humans, who think differently from modern people. Enjoy my conversation with Naomi Novik. So I'm trying to remember, I don't know if we have met since I became a professional. I feel like we have, but to be honest, I, I have zero memory of these things. I, I've i got a really poor memory as well. And and if you'll uh, indulge me, I'm going to tell a very stupid little story really quickly. Okay. So 20-year-old Brian McClellan was in uh, Brandon Sanderson's, one of his very first classes before he even made it big at uh, BYU uh, as a student. And Brandon told everybody that there is a Worldcon going on down in Los Angeles and uh, that some of the people from the class were going to go down there and if we wanted to carpool and everything. And, uh, and so he was giving recommendations on, you know, meeting professionals and all this stuff. And, and he said, oh, they do these things called coffee clutches. And you should, if you could sign up for one, that'd be great. And so I signed up for one with somebody named Naomi Novik. Uh, and I, uh, and I got your books. Uh, I think the first three were out. Maybe it was either two or three. Yeah. I think Kelly was, was, uh, yes, that was the last time I've been to a con in LA, I think was 2006, which is literally like the first three books came out that summer. So it, it it would have been that one. And I, uh, and I got the books and I rode them in the car in the back of the car crammed full of students. (laughs) And I went to your coffee clutch and, and I got to like, just kind of sit. And I was like this bright eyed, you know, young, like wannabe writer. And, uh, and it was so fun, like just to spend an hour with somebody who was at the time relatively new to publishing, but had yeah. kind of come out and made a big splash. And I, uh, gosh, I just like, it's one of those memories that kind of comes back to me occasionally that I really love. That's great. That's really cool. You know, it's, I have to say, I love coffee clutches. Coffee clutches are like my favorite thing at cons because you know, very often panels, you know, the panels where you have multiple writers on, it's literally like, you know, you roll a D20 and if you get the natural 20, then everything's great. And otherwise it's sort of like, we have said all these things before and we've all, you know, every once in a while the, the alchemy happens and, it, and it's a magical experience, but it is, it does feel a little, a little rare, but um, the coffee clutches because it's so specific, mm-hmm. right? Everybody who comes, you know, it's a limited group. You can really have an actual kind of conversation and talk to everyone there. Yeah. So so I love coffee clutches. That's always been been like my favorite thing. So. Well, and I find as somebody who kind of uh, has always been quite shy in person, that that sort of small group is way easier for me to digest and engage with than massive roomfuls of people that are probably only there to talk, to listen to the really famous person next to me. And so, you know, you like, it's just so much more fun to 
kind of engage with. Yeah. And, and you also often get sort of much more kind of obscure questions and sort of interesting questions. You can sort of talk and ramble about things. Um, and, and you can actually have like a bit of a conversation as well. And also everyone at the table, you know, when you do have like the panel with six writers, you know, for all that, a large proportion of the people may be there for one or two, especially bigger writers. It's not a single monolithic group. So everybody doesn't have the same frame of reference. And it doesn't, uh, it, you don't get the same thing as you do with a copy clutch, where pretty much everybody who's there has read the book, the same books and liked them and therefore shares a certain kind of taste. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like the, yeah, it's just a, it's just a nice format. I feel like, you know, there should be more, there should be, they should do online coffee clutches, right? Yeah. I think that would be a lot of fun, actually. Um I, I don't know, like the whole transitioning to kind of a lot of uh, the last two years, the like the online sort of conventions, it weirds me out in a way. And I don't think it should because uh, online is where I live most of my life. But for some reason, it kind of weirds me out. And I, I, I've only gotten invited to a few and I've turned them all down and I feel bad about it. No, I also I'm not I haven't basically done almost any virtual cons. I've done um, virtual uh, signings, mm-hmm. like virtual talks where it's one-on-one with another writer and either I'm interviewing them or they're interviewing me or it's a combination um, or it's an individual thing. And then what, what we did do for like my last book release was we would do something like, you know, 25 people would sign up to get a signed book plate. And I literally do like a timed one-on-one with them, two minutes a person, they'd get to see me sign the book plate for them in person. And then we'd send it. And that that at least approximates the experience. I just don't think like a panel, the few times that I've tried to do a panel with multiple people online, I just feel like it gets really hard. But a copy mm-hmm. clutch might, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that would also be a bust. But I, I, do, <laughs> I do also feel like things will probably be different after we start going back to in-person things more, right? When it becomes a mix of events. You know, then then I think things change because part of what's making it hard is that after you've done like 20 Zooms, you're just like, I never want to Zoom again ever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do do you find that you prefer the smaller conventions or the bigger ones? I I actually prefer the bigger ones, to be honest. I find that the bigger ones, partly for purely selfish reasons, which is that I find that the bigger ones, you tend to get like a whole bunch of authors show up like the, you know, it's like the gang's all here and you're, uh, and so for that selfish reason, and for the other selfish reason, which is at a bigger convention, you know, they don't kind of overschedule you. I think Mm -hmm. that, I think that, you know, sometimes at some smaller cons where, you know, and I think they're doing it, they're doing it deliberately and generously. Like they schedule you for five or six panels. I'm like, I don't have six hours of, of conversation in me over a weekend. Um, and I feel like, you know, I, I want, I would rather do less, but more, right? Yeah. And, and then spend, spend time myself actually, you know, just exploring the convention and talking with people because I do find actually that conventions Conventions are a great place to sort of build build conversations and community with other writers that then lend themselves to a lot of conversation, right? Yeah. Do you feel that? What about you? What's your What's your favorite? Oh, absolutely. I'm with you. I I tend to be those the little conventions. Once in a while, you'll find the one that's just an absolute diamond, right? That's just so amazing. It has the perfect number of people that are all the perfect type of people, and they're just amazing. But but those are so rare. It almost seems like the little conventions you more often it's it skews quite a bit older it has very low energy it you know you kind of you do you go to those you go to a whole bunch of panels and you're talking to the same 15 people kind of again and again and again and that can be very cool if it works out perfectly but it's also yeah it's also kind of saps your energy and does it give you like the big comic cons that have a good writing presence at them right they have they're so upbeat and that you you're you keep moving and you're meeting so many like other professionals which i i'm with you i'd love that that's my favorite part of conventions right. totally and also you know what i feel like the 
something that I think could be good is something more like, you know, Clarion, right? Where you have a situation where it's a couple of professionals and a group of aspiring writers who are there to sort of learn more intensively, right? Yeah. That kind yeah. of that kind of experience. But but in general, yeah, I generally do find that the bigger conventions, uh, which of course are the things that got canceled the most, right? For a good reason, um, because that was clearly not not the most not the wisest idea for a while. Uh, but it is it. So it's in a way the thing that that we couldn't have. I uh, I remember going to a little convention in Poland, mm-hmm. and they had uh, they had it, I, it was like my second time overseas ever, wow. and and I was freaking out, and I just like I didn't and I didn't you know obviously speak the language, I didn't know anything. There had been a couple of you know they were all very lovely people, they were amazing, but there had been a couple of communications crossed, and which, so took, where, where was the sorry? Which I, I've been to conventions in Poland, so which one was it? Oh, was it in Poland? It was the one. Man, it was a smaller one. It was about eight eight hundred people or so at a little castle outside of. Oh man, I forget which city it is. I'm gonna have to go look it up the now. North or but, south? Do you remember? Mm, yeah, no, I'm not remembering now. It was it was a good it was a good six years ago. So it's been All a right, while yeah. now. Uh, but but I remember like getting to it. There's been some there'd been some paths crossed and everything, and I had ended up taking a taxi to get to the thing, uh, to the event and. And I show up and nobody was really there to greet me. And I was freaking out really badly. And I and I finally get like a little spot kind of alone. And I'm just kind of like, okay, how am I going to survive this next four days? And then like a moment later, Angus Watson walks in and I had, I had never met him. I hadn't talked to him online, but I recognized his picture and I knew he was going to be there. He walks in. And it was like a, a like a, a like a I, I was it was saved. It was like just like another professional that like he also didn't speak the language and but was way more gregarious than me and way more outspoken and able to kind of he, he was very used to traveling around the world and stuff. And he honestly he took me under his wing for that weekend and it was just it saved my life. Extroverts, extroverts are so helpful. <laughs> <laughs> when you can find yeah. it, it's like cling. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, oh, thank you so much. But like that kind of experience, though, is really what kind of it definitely is one of the things that I love the most about conventions. Well, you know, hopefully now we get to we get to start having them again. You know, right? <laughs> Fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. I'm like sitting on these plans for uh, for Spain and France this summer, and I'm yeah. I'm, I'm going to Spain in uh, in July. I'm going to Celsius. Is that is that one of yours? Oh, yeah. Yes. Come. Yes. It'll be great. I, yes. I'm I'm planning on it. I'm hoping my wife will come with me, mm. and we'll take a couple extra days. That's awesome. Yes, I have. I have. Uh, you know, I have a friend in the UK who usually comes over to meet me um, when I do conventions in Europe, and and we go go traveling. And in fact. Um, I really want, I, I actually was there just before the pandemic, but I really want to go back to a place in Portugal, which is Sintra, which is unbelievable. If you've never been there. I haven't. I've never been to Spain. I've never been to Portugal. I'm very excited. Well, so this is actually sort of the Sintra is is um, is a town that's about an hour away from Lisbon. Mm-hmm. And there's a place there called the, and I'm going to completely butcher this. So I apologize to anybody who speaks Portuguese. Quinta da Regalia. And Regalera. Um, yes. But anyway, if you search for Portugal, Sintra, and the well, um, you'll bring up the links to this place. It is unbelievable looking. It's basically this garden, this estate, a mansion and gardens were built by this nobleman in like the the 19th century who was sort of into into uh, Freemasonry and tarot symbolism and uh, and sort of the whole idea of the initiation rites of Freemasonry and basically had an architect who was of like mind and they designed this garden that's essentially sort of like an initiation ritual pathway complete with a sort of descent into the underworld and then a passage through the darkness and then rising back out um, into the light. Oh my gosh. And the photographs of it are unbelievable um, that you can, you can find the photos online and, but just being there is really kind of amazing. Um, 
and and yeah it's it's just a really really cool place that sounds so dang cool yes oh man so i highly recommend i mean not that there is any shortage of amazing things to see in spain so right um, i get kind of like locked because i i'm not really i didn't as a kid i never traveled overseas we didn't really we did family vacations where we'd go stay at a cousin's house kind of thing mm-hmm. you know like uh, so i just i'm so not used to travel especially after a few years of covid I'm like, I'm freaking out. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to get Michelle to go with me. We're going to go to Barcelona. Like, that'll be fun. I don't know what to do once I'm there. Like, I don't know how to navigate foreign countries. Well, you know, I have to say, it's like, it's now with Google Maps, you kind of, you plug it into Google Maps, you hit transit and you just follow the instructions and you'll end up where you, you know, it may not always be the best way, you know, like sometimes you look on Google, Google Maps tells me how I'm supposed to get someplace downtown. I'm like, (laughs) nah, I'm better off if I change at this train station instead. But you get there. Yeah, you get there. So it's it really is like a game changer. I find that that an Uber and Lyft, Mm. which obviously, you know, problematic in many ways, and the business practice is terrible, but the technology is brilliant. Right. And, and the idea of being able to know that, all right, I can, I can peace out of here if I have to, <laughs> you know, if I've just gotten myself completely lost, I can just push a button and somebody will show up who will know how to take me someplace else. Right. I, I do love that. They're like, uh, like, okay, it might cost me 50 bucks, but I can get out of this situation. Right. I do like that. Well, man, that will be so cool. Oh man. I, yeah. I keep like, I like have this fear in the back of my head that everything's going to get canceled again from like some new surge of COVID. You know, it, it might, but at the same time we have to kind of live our lives. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, for me, I felt very strongly at the beginning about uh, that, that we, you know, in a way I feel like we kind of, we kind of missed the ball in slightly different directions. I feel like we didn't lock down hard enough and vaccinate hard enough at the beginning. And now it's taking a little too long to, to open up, you know, where the science just kind of isn't there because, you know, but I obviously here in New York, we're starting to, they're, they're sort of like, oh, wait, actually it's okay, you know, and, and the mask regulations are coming down and, and it does feel like in a way, if it does have to lock down, I think it's better to be like, okay, we have to lock down right now, really hard for like a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And then we stop again. And I feel like that's hopefully is that kind of sort of slightly less, you know, sort of less emotional, right? Yeah. Kind of, kind of process um, would be, would be better because yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Just like, you know, do it, do it hard, do it decisively, do it fast. And then, you know, but, but have a limit to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, you know, I don't know. I feel very differently, you know, when it's like high risk of death versus high risk of getting the flu for two weeks. Those are two different things to me, you know? Yeah. And, and, and once we're all, you know, like we got our boosters and stuff that feels, feels way less like, gosh, I remember the moment I got like my second shot last summer, I just felt so much better about existing. Yes. Yes. You know, it just sort of like it was, you know, sort of it went by degrees. Like my husband uh, got his first because of a heart condition. And I immediately like, you know, stress level like, like this. And then I got mine and went like this. And then and then my daughter got hers in the fall. And it was like, OK, I'm done. It's right. Yeah, uh, it's, it's that cycle. You know, everybody's kind of feels a little differently about it and everything. But, yeah. you know, getting it done, is it's important. So I was very curious about your uh, background in video games yeah. as someone who loves video games. Uh, you've got a you've you've got a master's degree in computer science. Yep. Yep, that. you know, I mean, so like it's it's sort of one of those weird stories where um sometimes you kind of don't know what you know in like in college um I I basically was sort of a little bit of an overachiever and I I basically did the maximum course load every semester so that by my junior year I basically finished all the requirements for my English major and then my senior year, I had sort of burned out and I spent most of it playing and building uh, online mushes, like text-based games. And yeah, so my senior year was an independent study in, in, uh, in online gaming in early because there was no there was no video games at the time. It was like Mosaic had just come out, basically, and it was it was pretty much just text-based video games. But then afterwards, you know, so I graduate with my English degree. And in fact, I went 
I, my, my first job was largely ended up being quite technical. And then I was like, you know what, I want to go get a computer science degree and, and make computer games. And I went and got the master's and I was in fact, working on a PhD when I got a, a friend of mine was working was working with a team that was building the expansion set to Neverwinter Nights. Mm-hmm. And so the cool thing about Neverwinter Nights was it was built with a mod, a, a mod kit, you know, a really, a really robust modding tool that you could, that they essentially used to build the levels themselves. So, you know, it was, it was technically feasible for somebody at home, like an individual person at home to build complete new levels of the game, right? Complete new standalone adventures. You could do that with the mod maker. Well, and that had to have been revolutionary for the time, right? It was. And of course, you know, the thing that you realize is in practice, and the reason that more companies don't do this is that in practice, people can't, you know, because, and here's the thing, storytelling is such a key part of making an actual playable mod storytelling, writing, and the tools were not and still are not like you still can't build good enough tools that somebody who's just a good storyteller and not also a a reasonably good programmer can do it. And somebody who's good enough at both to produce something that's fun enough to really play almost certainly is going to have enough demands on their time other other sort of professional demands on their time that they won't be able to spend the time to do a mod for free right it just it's it's too slightly too big a project but at the time because they'd done it they were like great we're going to farm out the expansion set to another company and and because i was both the programmer i was a programmer um and my friend who recruited me was the lead designer uh and he was like you know we don't actually have the budget for a programmer because this whole tool is built and so they don't think we should need a programmer, but we do have the budget for a designer. So how about you come on and you can do a little coding for us too. Well, and obviously, so it turns out it actually, it, it, it was not something that non-technical people could easily use. And yeah. they did, they did actually need, need programmers, but it was still, it was still such a wonderful experience to use it and work on it. And it really, and that was for me, what actually had me make the transition to being a novelist, (laughs) oddly enough. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. Have you done any computer game writing? I haven't. I, I've been invited a couple of times after becoming published, and right. I simply just don't have the time, even though it's yeah. kind of one of those, like, it's one of those things that's kind of like a bucket list item for me that would right. be super fun if I ever had, like, four years off after a major <laughs> bestseller or something. Yeah, it, I, I, you know, that doesn't kind of work that way. I think, right. I think the major bestseller and the publisher's like, so, let, let's let's keep going. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. Yeah. No, well, for computer, so so the neat, the interesting thing about writing for a computer game for me at the time was the structure, right? And the the aspect of working with a team and that we had to make quite a lot of decisions up front. We had to, because the artists, the artists literally had to start making the cinematics for like the the end of the game the, and the middle, middle points of the game. We had like the budget for three, for four cinematics. So like one after each act, one before and one after each yeah. act. Uh, and so they needed to know what's, what's going in this cinematic. <laughs> um, so you have to nail down certain things quite early. And because it was never Winter Nights, it's a Dungeons and Dragons universe. Right. Uh, And so it was all about building a character and you had to think about the different kinds of characters that a player could make and how the decision trees worked in the dialogue for for the um, NPCs and for the henchmen characters, which were a big part of the of the process. 
And just sort of thinking about that from a storytelling point of view, that kind of analytical engineering aspect of building the story kind of helped me, I think, engage that sort of that sort of analytical half, the engineering half of my brain more closely with the creative side, the storytelling side, where I'd been writing fanfic for for years by then. But all my fanfic had been short. All my fanfic had been like 2,000, 5,000 words. You know, that was that was kind of it before I worked on Neverwinter Nights. And literally afterwards, I have like the, the next, first of all, the year when I worked on Neverwinter Nights, there, I didn't post a single fanfic story. It's like nothing. And then afterwards, it was like, I wrote a 5,000 word story, 10,000 word story, 16,000 word story, 30,000 word story. And then I was like, I started working on something. I was like, wait a second. This I, I, this doesn't want to be fanfic. This is mine. Yeah. And that was Temeraire. And so, yeah. Oh, that's that's very cool. Like, it, it is funny to see that kind of a very direct kind of transition from one thing to the other. It's a really quick swing. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, you sort of, in a way, that's one of the things that I think doesn't get sort of thought of as good advice sometimes, and I think is, which is sometimes trying different art forms is really good for helping you move to another level. Um, I find that that I feel that way about vidding. I feel like working on on vids, fan vids, made me a better writer because sort of thinking about thinking about the rhythm, seeing seeing scenes, sort of cinematic scenes, looking at them in terms of frame and color, sort of looking at the way that characters move and sort of articulating that and and having having to train your eye to see it kind of makes you think about about writing differently. And I feel the same way about, you know, like painting miniatures or knitting or, you know, almost any kind of different art form. I, I frequently, I don't know, what about you? Do, what what are what do you do when you're not writing? I, I mean, I play a whole lot of video games um, to, to a, a horrible degree, although I'm getting better about it. I started uh, about three weeks ago, I started sketching. Um, I just, I kind of decided that I, I wanted to, I've never had any like artistic bone, like you know, physical art kind of bone in my body. And I was like, you know, maybe I should just try it just for fun. And I, uh, and I like left straight into the deep end of like trying to do figure drawing. <laughs> and I did one that I worked on all afternoon and my wife came off, uh, came over and went, you realize that that is, uh, you realize the head is all, all the different sizes, si- the wrong size, but everything else looks really good. Like, this is literally the first time you've ever done this. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, okay, if you get some pointers, you might actually improve. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Yeah. No, no, sketching. I remember that there is a moment with sketching, right? With figure drawing where... All of a sudden, you're like, "Oh wait, I, I this I have to look right. You have to you have to learn how to see the line and not think about it in your head, right? You have to just learn to like yeah. actually see what is actually there, and it's quite hard. And then when once you make that transition, all of a sudden it's like, "Oh wait," I, and then of course you know you still have to develop the hand skill to do it. <laughs> Well, well, and something I've always struggled with is that sort of looking and paying attention to very particular bits. Like I, I'm, I'm pretty good at the uh, kind of the big picture of writing epic fantasy, and and it makes me pretty good at inter kind of intertwining lots of point of views and things like that. Is because I'm quite good at the big picture. But there are times I really struggle at stopping and looking like directly at little tiny individual pieces. And like right away with sketching, that was the first thing that like I kind of went, oh, this is something I'm going to have to learn like as a skill. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I know I know so many writers, you know, I know some writers who really can do who are so wonderful at like the sensory detail. Right. You read a scene and you can smell you, you can smell it, you can you can taste it, you know, you sort of really feel the embodied characters, you're sort of there with them. And then the entire story is literally the two characters sitting. They're, they don't move, they don't do anything, <laughs> nothing happens. Um, and it's just this sort of experience, you know, that it's just the conversation between them. And, and I have, I have a good friend who's absolutely brilliant at that, at that sort of sensory, sensual kind of detail and finds it very hard to be like, what happens? What, what do they do? Um, and then conversely, I know writers who are just brilliant at 
at sort of like the, okay, this is what happens next, you know, generating that, mm-hmm. but need to be reminded. And I, I am, I am one of them to, to be like, okay, stop, think a little bit. What, what is happening in the scene? What are the emotions? You know, I know why the characters are, you know, why the characters are doing it. Why? <laughs> tell, tell, tell the reader, <laughs> right? Kind of getting, getting, digging in really to that, to that level of detail. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. I, I have that sort of, I, I'm pretty good at having a flow through a scene. I'm, I'm good at having the characters move around organically, you know, like go pour a glass of wine, you know, like, you know, call for the maid, all the re- little tiny things that a human, that humans being do, do when they're in the room together, right? I'm quite good at that. But like, man, when it comes to like, oh, I remember they actually will smell something, you know, like, what are, what are the senses that are hitting them? What are the emotions they're feeling? And I have to stop and think about those things. Right, right. And and very often, you know, uh, one of the things that I find is important, right, is to sort of, you know, let the flow come, right? Whatever whatever is flowing, that's what, that's what you just have to get out of the way and let it go on. Um, but I do find that going through with that sort of mental, mental editor, you know, in fact, that writer that I was talking about, I often have her in the back of my head when I'm going through a scene, when I'm rereading and I'm like, you know, all right, what, what would, what would she do in these scenes? You know, that kind of thing. Oh, that that's good. That I, I need that little voice in my head. Maybe, maybe I can still develop it. <laughs> I, uh, but you're a huge advocate for uh, fan fiction. And I was, I really was curious about that because I mean, I've, I'm I, I'm thirty something episodes, nearly forty episodes into this podcast, and I I don't think we've talked about fan fiction with any of the authors I've had come on. And so when I I, I when I realized how big of an advocate you were for fan fiction, I was like, okay, we're gonna stop and we're gonna yeah we're gonna discuss that a little bit. I'm very curious about it. I mean, you know, I just started writing fanfic. Well, I, I made up fanfic in my head for years before I actually became part of fanfic community right? Online fandom. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, the thing about fanfic, which, you know, obviously now I feel like people have sort of gotten over it. Uh, I do remember when I started writing uh, professionally, that there was this sort of sense of like, you know, that I sort of felt like I had to basically just go in up front and be like, just to be clear, I write fanfic and I'm going to keep writing fanfic and I'm proud of it. I'm going to talk about it and advocate for it. And that that was that was somehow a brave thing to, it was not, you know, it was like, spoiler alert, not so, not so brave, but that that was sort of the, the sense. And I did know many fanfic writers who, you know, went pro and pulled all their fanfiction off, um, you know, destroyed all evidence that they had ever written fanfic, wouldn't admit it if they were out. And, you know, and obviously this is, I mean, this is all kind of connected to uh, the stigma that was, that was basically a kind of uh, a sexist and, um, and, and uh, homophobic stigma largely that responded to the to the fact of media fandom and that fanfic fandom largely grew up out of Star Trek and it was people who wanted to who didn't so much want to talk about science fiction in general and science fiction and fantasy literature they wanted to talk about Star Trek they wanted to tell more stories about Star Trek and that there was a sort of you know, historically, when when you talk to some of the people from early from early media fandom, from early like start of Star Trek and fanfic fandom, you know, they really articulate this experience of being pushed out of conventions, right? Being pushed out of science fiction conventions, um, and being made to feel unwelcome, being sort of looked down on because there was a sense of what those conventions were supposed to be was about kind of lionizing the uh the writers the professional writers and, and kind of in a way that was meant that, that was sort of like you ladies are getting your icky hands on our on our stuff kind of way that that um, yeah. you know and obviously that's fan fiction fandom is very typically very heavily female it's quite heavily queer as well and that's partly because right these are you know fanfic becomes more compelling it becomes the more compelling the more the less that the narratives of mainstream culture are written for you right the 
the harder that it is for you to find stories that speak to you in the mainstream, the more likely you are to be like, well, here are the, here are the, I, I like pieces of this story. I like this universe. Now, how, how can I put myself into this? How do I get the story that I want, which is just literally never being told to me? And that is, I think, a huge part of where, where the impulse comes from. And then the other impulse is, I think, one of the things about fan fiction, right? One of the things that fan fiction got gets criticized for is a lack of originality, right? And the thing is that, you know, the to me, obviously, there are de- many different definitions of fanfic. Um, but my definition of fanfic is something that's being done in community, right? And it is the shared universe, right? The fact that you're all in this mass universe that you all know about because it's broadcast and watched by millions of people every week, right? Or whatever, whether that's Star Trek or whatever, which is that gives you the shared ground to talk to each other with, right? It's like English, you know, you speak the same language. Um, but in this case, the language that you speak is the building blocks of story, right? It's that you share a common canon. It's that you share characters and expectations for those characters. And then with those expectations, you you play with them in different ways. And what a lot of people want out of fanfic is not, you know, in fact, good fanfic is not a good piece of fanfic is not a good tie-in novel, right? Tie-in novels um, typically are intended to feel like a real piece of the canon, right? Fanfic novels are not meant to, fanfic is not meant to feel that way. Fanfic is typically about, how about something completely different, right? Let's take these pieces and put them together in a totally different way. Let's create the relationship, you know, Kirk Spock. Let's have this this relationship instead. How does this change the story? Let's tell this story instead. And it's all about using those building blocks of story to, to tell different stories than the ones that you were getting. And so it, the, the place where the originality is happening is not in the same place, but it's still there, right? Oh, that, that's really cool. It's, it's such a funny thing because I, I started off kind of my first real attempts to write, write were fan fiction. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I went for about two years in my mid-teens where that's what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And then... And it was like Wheel of Time fan fiction is where I kind of started off, mm-hmm. and uh, and then there was a point at which I which look, you know, Wheel of Time is kind of like Tolkien fan fiction, right? I mean, right. Well, and, but and there was a moment at which kind of I, I probably read something to the extent of fan fiction isn't real writing. If you want to be serious, then you have to you know do your own worlds. And I left it behind, and I never went back. Right. And you know, sometimes I think about that, and I. I wouldn't have the time to do fan fiction nowadays, but like, I sometimes think about that and I think, Oh, I kind of robbed myself of kind of the fun, yeah. you know, like I, like I, I started off as like a 14 year old looking for smut and, and stumbling upon like a, a gigantic fan fiction website. And then reading these, like, I, I, I still remember a story that was massive and fantastically written that was like Star Wars invades the Star Trek universe. Right. And it, and, and I loved it. I ate that up and I just, and that kind of like, kind of got my creativity going. And like, I, I'd love that kind of those mashings of things like that. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing that I, uh, I mean, obviously look, in fact, I actually strongly urge newer writers to, to write fanfic. Um, for a couple of reasons. One is the idea that it's not real and you should, I mean, that, that makes no sense literally in terms of any kind of art or any kind of artwork. When you think about like music, right? Does anyone tell you, no, no, you shouldn't practice Mozart and Beethoven. You should be composing your own music. No, you learn music theory. You practice great music you learn by doing it you learn by playing it you learn by listening to it i mean that that's you know so much great music is sampling and right and remixing and and that's that is how you know i mean picasso right is like you know good artists good artists make their own great artists steal right that's that's how it works it's about you know and so for that reason i think that just the fact of you know with fanfic if you st- from a from a purely sort of craft oriented point of view right with fanfic you can choose the part of the story that you uh, the part of writing the part of craft that you want to work on 
right? If you want to work on sort of character vignettes, you can write a piece of fanfic that's literally set in the middle of a plot that's just like a missing scene, right? In fact, this is what a lot of people write. Um, It's just like an emotional moment between two characters that you set in the midst of a plot. So you don't have to worry about plot. You've got You've got the cause, right? You've got the plot structure around you to give you the the reason for the emotions. And then you you just work on the emotions, right? If you want to work on plot, but you don't want to work about developing characters, right? You take existing characters and you can tell a new plot with those characters and think about, all right, what would these characters do next in this universe given this event, Right. And because the universe, the rules of the universe are set up for you, the characters are built for you. You can think more about plot. If you want to think about building characters, you can build your own characters and put them in the universe and have them interact with other established characters. Right. So in a way, fanfic really kind of lets you zero in on the piece that you want to work on, if that's how you want to use it. But, you know, frankly, even more importantly than that, right, for every person who's interested in writing fanfic, there are at least 100 people who just want to read it, right? And because you are in a community, because you're in this shared universe, they can read your story. And even if you're not a very good writer yet, right? Many people can read and get enjoyment from your story, right? Just because it's, they already know the characters. They are, they're with you, right? Right. It, it's already introduced. They know what's going, they know what Star Wars and Star Trek and, and Wheel of Time are and things like that. Yes. And they already care and they, and they already want to see. And chances are, if you've thought of a story that you want to tell, somebody else would like to see that story, right? And so even if you don't tell it in the most polished way, and even if, you know, the dialogue is not great, somebody will read it and give you response and respond to you. Mm-hmm. And that response, that interaction, I think, is it is so valuable as a as a writer. You know, getting that feedback, learning, learning what stories speak to other people, learning when you've succeeded and when you failed as a writer is is so is so incredibly useful. Well, I, and it's got it's a bit of a crucible too, right? You kind of you have to you go through this process before maybe even before you've ever taken a creative writing class or done anything formal. And so you've 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 been exposed to the idea of strangers looking at what you create, which is honestly a massive block for a lot of people. Right. Well, and I mean, in fandom, the thing is, of course, the, it's not strange. It's like, yay. Right. You know, there's um, there, there's this wonderful cartoon that I've seen that people use in fandom when it's like, you know, it's, there's like a little cartoon and, and somebody is bringing a cake to a potluck and they look over and there's this like gorgeous three tier cake and they have a little cake and they're like, oh, their cake is better than mine. And the second picture is like somebody with a fork and knife going two cakes, <laughs> right? With such glee. And that's what fandom is. Fandom is two cakes. <laughs> you know, there's, it doesn't matter because of a voracious appetite. Like people who are in fandom are in it precisely because they want more of the thing that they love and they love it so passionately uh, that they, that they've gone online. They've actually taken the trouble to go online and type in a search for whatever it is that they want to read. And so they're there for you and it's a supportive community. And that's so good. I think for a lot of writers. Do you think that maybe the establishment, you know, I say that in air quotes, um, um, struggles so much with the idea, or, or at least used to struggle a lot more with the idea of fan fiction because it's not quantifiable. Because it, by because by its nature, it can't be monetized. So you can't really you can't say, oh, well, that'll sell a hundred thousand. You know, like it's it's not a thing. Well, you know, so look, I mean, I have to say that that uh, it you know people stopped people get started giving right fanfic writers much less of a hard time after 50 shades of gray <laughs> i was going to mention that right because it's like that's the thing in this country um you know the idea that you might make art for pleasure and for joy and for your own creativity and not to make money uh confuses people because they often think of of writing in particular but of art in general as work mm-hmm. and and there's this weird creepy mindset that you know, work, that labor belongs, that labor has to produce money um, and that you're not allowed to just do things that that make you happy, 
and which is a, a totally terrible, toxic, you know, late capitalism mindset, you know, but so then 50 shades of, but in this country, if something makes a billion dollars, then it's automatically okay. Right. right? <laughs> it's automatically good. It doesn't matter how horrible it actually is, you know, in a certain level, <laughs> people are like, oh, that's all right then. Well, I, I definitely struggle with that same thing. I like I my parents were very supportive of me wanting to be an author, but they also my dad also was very logical and very straightforward. Of, okay, well that's great if you want to do this, but how is it going to pay the bills? And so that's been my mindset my entire career. And and sometimes right. Well, and look, you know, here's the thing: you need to pay your bills. Right. It, it's, it is a good and important thing to think about and a good conversation for parents to have with their children. You know, how are you going to pay your bills? But, you know, I have a lot of friends who they don't want to pay their bills by writing. Um, they want to write just like there are a lot of people who do not want to be professional touring musicians. Because being a professional touring musician is not a life that many, many people want. Many more people enjoy like playing the guitar on the weekend with their friends or, you know, sitting down at a piano and playing for their enjoyment than they do to, I don't know, you know, than, than want to like be traveling around in a van, um, you know, peeing in bottles. Right? I mean, it's just <laughs> but, you know, I, I know touring musicians, so I know the left, right? It, uh, that's not, and, and for writers, you know, I often say whenever somebody's like, what, you know, how, how do I become a writer and like, what makes you a writer, et cetera. Um, I, I often say that what makes you a writer, what makes you an artist is that you sit down and write. And if you don't want to sit down and write, then why would you do that? Um, but just because you want to sit down and write does not mean you necessarily want to produce to deadline. Doesn't mean you want to do copy edits. Doesn't mean you want to do like structural edits. Doesn't mean that you want to think about producing commercial manuscripts. Doesn't mean that you want to to like do promo. Doesn't mean, you know, all, all sorts of things. And you don't have to. It's okay to literally just like, you know, to, to get a job, get a job that pays your bills, and then in your free time, write just for yourself. <laughs> you know? And and that's okay. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to make art. We are we are art making creatures, you know. As you've mentioned before, it's a it's also a community thing. That's you yeah. know, it's one of the many ways that human beings create community for themselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and sort of more broadly, right, obviously, uh, you know, the archive of our own, right, is literally this complete thing that we built as as a group, our community built the archive. And it's literally for free, um, you know, doesn't, you know, when you look at it, people are always really confused now when they look at the archive. Um, very often, whenever we run our, our fundraisers, they're all like, oh, they're all getting paid a billion dollars. Why would you donate money? And we're like, nobody is getting paid. There, there's no, nobody has been paid. It's never been like, it's all volunteers. It's volunteers all the way, right? Um, you know, I, I, there are actually a handful of contractors who've been paid to write like especially boring bits of code over the years. But for the most part, it's all, it's all volunteer run. It's all volunteer built. The servers are owned by, a, you know, a nonprofit. And all of that is because of community right of people who themselves don't actually want to write you know our sysadmins are not don't don't particularly write they like to read fanfic that's why they care um but you know the we have there are people who who don't want to write fanfic but they are like passionate they have that librarian gene and so they care passionately about you know tagging and and wrangle the tags. There are people who volunteer to do literally support to answer people's questions um, and do technical support for them. You know, everybody is volunteers, and and that's all just from the community. That's very cool. Yeah. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you read fanfic of your own stuff? I generally don't. Um, and in fact, I generally don't like to read fanfic of, uh, of books because with books, if it's if it doesn't quite nail the author's voice, right, the narrative voice, I mean, then it often feels it often feels wrong. Uh, you know, it, it's quite hard um, for me to get over that because I see the author too much. I, I don't get to immerse myself in the same way. And with Temeraire, or, you know, I remember reading a piece of Temeraire fanfic and being like, Temeraire would not say that. And that's just, that's death to the story that, you know, it's like, you can't enjoy the story at that point. So, um, so I generally don't tend to read fanfic of my own stuff, but I love that people write it. So yeah. I, I, I highly endorse it. And in fact, I, what I do try to do is as a writer, I'm very often thinking about like, what can I put in here? that, you know, fans of this pairing would enjoy, fans of this character would enjoy? What can I do to give people a little sort of details that I know other pe people will hang fanfic stories off of, right? To provide that kind of, um, that kind of openness in the work and, and invite people in to create in the work. Um, that's, the that's very cool. I, I it would never have kind of because I I do kind of consciously keep my audience in mind when I'm writing things, but I it would never even occur to me to try to like even with little fiddlings kind of create something for fan fiction writers. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know the thing is that that's the sort of thing where you know I do think and to go back to your question of like why is there a certain kind of mainstream negative reaction to fanfic? I do think that it comes down to the sort of idea of authority, right? And authority is the sense of, of control. Um, it's a sense of power. And people. some people want that. Some people really want that and don't like the idea. And, and I think possibly experience experience like, well, how about if I told your story, but differently as critique, right? As opposed to, you know, it's just another way, right? You know, the, the road not traveled. And it's the, the joy of being able to go down the road not traveled is not, it doesn't mean that the road you took was bad, right? It just means there's a really cool road over here too that you didn't, maybe you didn't see because there's a, there's a signpost and it got turned around, right? So that you had to be coming from the other, from a different angle to see it. And so, but you do have to recognize, right? One of the things that I think underlies fan fiction and underlies one of the, and is one of the pillars for why I feel like, you know, fan fiction is sort of morally, right? Is that you would never, you don't, you can't tell fan fiction about something that you haven't accepted into your brain, right? You have to know the universe. You have to know the characters. You have to, you have to sort of have it. It has to exist in your head. And then the thing that you work, that you write, has to come back out from you. And so, you know, when you think about the reading experience, right? And this is the thing that we often, we often want to think that the quality of our book depends on us and our work, right? And that's 50% true, right? That's it. 50%. That I, 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 will, I will go to the wall that 50% is the absolute maximum that you can control the quality of your book. And the other 50% and probably more, right? I think actually, if I'm honest, I think it's probably like 90% of the quality of the book is in the reader, right? It's in what the reader brings to your book and the reader's experience of it. And whether they are in a place for your book, whether the book 
lands right for them in the time they are in, if they if they share enough of a frame of reference with you, you know, right? I mean, like just to take it to sort of the the bare the, the bare minimum. If somebody does not read English and I give them my book in English, it, it's not going to be a good book. It doesn't matter how much work I've done, right? They they cannot enjoy my book if they can't read it. But just sort of even more generally, and and I think that 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 acknowledgement of lack of control is hard, <laughs> is often hard for a lot of people. And you know, to to sort of embrace fan fiction, um, to really sort of be like, well, I'm not going to write these two characters having a, a romantic relationship, but I'm going to leave an opening for somebody else to put them together. In a way, that level, that that level, I think of um, of change to the narrative is sufficiently large that people do find like, no, I don't, I don't want those two characters together. If I wanted them together, I would put them together. And I don't want you to do it either. But I'm just sort of like, sorry, it's in my head. You don't, you don't get to control how I think, right? You don't, you don't get to, you get to offer me your thoughts. Mm -hmm. You don't get to stop me having mine. Right. Yeah, that, that's a really good. I, I think that's a very healthy way of looking at it. Right. It's you know, like I've I've always been a little bit obsessed with kind of control of what I'm working on to the point where I'm I'm also obsessed with collaborative storytelling, <laughs> but I do not participate in it at all because I so much want to be in control of the thing that I'm working on that that I would very much struggle with trying to do it with someone else. But I think that it's way healthier to kind of to to be open about these things and to try to uh, to make it a dialogue in some ways, whether you're telling a story with someone else or participating in a wider universe through fan fiction. Right. I mean, you know, that's and, and honestly that I do feel that all the work all the writing that I'm interested in doing, right, is always a conversation, right? I do think dialogue is the right word, that it's it's always in conversation with something else. And whether or not, um, you know, I feel like it's, you know, and fanfic is sort of like having a really close, intimate conversation, right, with one other person, you know, that's that's fanfic or, or two other people if you do a crossover, right? And that's, and, and that's kind of what it is, right? You know, sorry to go, take this back to like coffee clutches and panels, right? Yeah. You know, so so fan fiction is like a really good, you know, one on one, right, with one other person, where where what comes out of it is is this thing that the two of you kind of make together, and even if the other person doesn't know that they were, you know, their book is there, um, their their show is there, whatever. Where um, original fiction tends to be a little bit more like either you've sort of brought like a whole bunch of people are standing behind you whispering things to you, and you're like synthesizing it and sharing, uh, you know, uh, something like that, right? I don't know, but I feel like that's. You know, if your work isn't in conversation with something, then it wouldn't be interesting. It is in conversation with other things. It is in conversation with the inspirations and um, and whatever else you're taking in, whether that's could be in conversation with the real world. It can be conversation with history. It can be a conversation with other books. It can be a conversation with movies. Um, it can be in conversation with music or art or drawing, right? But it's got to be in some... Nothing truly stands alone. So... Fan fiction, I think, is a little bit more like how how close is the thing you're talking to? I, I've never really thought about it in terms of conversations like that. And I, I really quite like that. I think that's really cool. And I'll probably spend the rest of the day thinking about, you know, what, what am I writing right now? And what is that in conversation with? Because uh, one of the things I really like about these conversations that I have with other professionals is kind of learning the way that they think about how they interact with their art and with their business and with everything they do as a professional uh, in ways that I have, that haven't even occurred to me at some time. I absolutely love that. Uh, Now I was curious uh, because we talked a little bit about that conversation with the real world and I, uh, and, and your books tend to have one foot in the real world still. And I was kind of curious what, as somebody who writes secondary world, almost, I was going to say exclusively, but I have a book over my shoulder right here that's set in Cleveland. So, um, well, and in fact, my next one's going to be going to be a secondary world fantasy, actually. Yes. Right. But uh, so, so what is it that draws you to the kind of alternate history, alternate real world kind of stuff? 
as opposed to fully creating your own. I mean, mostly just that I love history, right? I, I'm just, I'm, I'm a history nerd. You know, I, I started the Napoleonic Wars because I love the Napoleonic Wars. I, I've, you know, I read my first biography of Napoleon when I was 10. Um, and I, I just, I, I was actually, you know, that's why he had to be my villain because, because yeah, I was a fangirl. So I knew he had to be the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I love, I love history and I love period writing, partly because it's actually quite easy to catch the flavor of it, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that um, when you're writing, the more distinct the, you know, as a as a relatively newer writer, especially at length, I I did find it easier to give to I find think find a distinctive voice um, in Temeraire, partly because. You know, I had sort of dislocated myself from my own sort of dialect, right, of English and was thinking about the word usage and the rhythm of sentences on on that level. You know, look, I think that really a lot of what makes writing pleasurable, uh, writing and reading pleasurable is the flavor of the of the words. Right. There's there's two separate there's two separate things. Right. There's there's the flavor of the text. And there's the 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 sort of the experience being created, um, being narrated, and the combination of those two things, I think, is is the where you get the big bang for the buck. And so I I found working in history with with historical voices, and also that one of the other things that I like, and it's one of the reasons that, for instance, I enjoy writing aliens and monsters and dragons um, as people, which is I really like kind of trying to think of sort of non-typical human mindsets, right? Characters, beings, the entities that think that are internally consistent, have rational, are rational and internally consistent. So they're not crazy, but they don't think like sort of, they don't think the way that we now consider rational, right? Yeah. That the conclusions they reach are not necessarily like the conclusions that we would reach. And I think that's one of the things that's fun is that, you know, the past is another country, right? They do things differently there. That gives you a chance to write people who I think never Nevertheless, are people, but do you know think differently? They're in a different culture. They they have different expectations. They have they reach different conclusions. They have different cultural assumptions, and and playing with that is like going to another planet. It is like writing about you know dragons. It is you know that. So so I think that's part of why. I, I mean, obviously, the other piece you know is. So for Temeraire, in fact, in particular, um, there was a thing that I wanted to do in Temeraire, which is I wanted you to believe in the dragons, right? I wanted you, but I wanted you to believe in them in a specific way, which is I want the reader to think of the dragons as actual sort of physical creatures in the world, plausible, that are as believable as a sailing ship. Yeah. Right? You don't see sailing ships very often. Most people have never been on a, on a, you know, like an actual an actual like man of war, right? From the age of sail. Um, but you know that they exist, right? They feel real in your head yeah. when, you, when you hear about them. I, I wanted the dragons to feel the same way. And doing that in period, right, is effective because you, the extent to which the technology is accurate, right? The, disti- the So for instance, like the, the way the rifles, you know, they had rifles on the dragons that work like actual rifles, right? You know, the, the harness, is meant to feel and be be used in similar ways to the way that ropes and cables are used on a sailing ship, right? The technology is meant to feel all kind of on the same on the same plane and slightly different from our technology. And so in that way, it makes the the dragon technology and then ultimately the dragons themselves more real, right? It, it, it embeds them in the period, in it, and then because they've been embedded in the period, which is not our period, it the whole thing kind of solidifies a bit. Yeah. Right. You know, so yeah. sort of like borrowing from the the realness of history to give some of that to the fantastical thing that you've created. And, and I did the exact same thing with Powder Mage with the same time period, mm-hmm. which was just to say, okay, what what can I do different for in, in my case for straight up epic fantasy secondary world? But what can I do different, but also make it feel familiar to the reader? Well, you know, because I knew that you know any guns in epic fantasy. 
uh, would be viewed with, uh, you know, some suspicion by a lot of the readers and creating a, a kind of a very Napoleonic feeling setting. It was even the people that aren't familiar with the time very, very much. They still read about it in school. It's still in the back of their head somewhere. They still recognize it as this European sort of thing. And I, I'm, I just, I'm right there with you that it's ex exactly the kind of the, the thing that I wanted to grasp from that time period. Right, right. You know, and I do think that that is a very effective, right? There's a reason that people do it a lot, right? Um, and if you are making a pure fantasy world, right? If you are, you know, in fact, I've literally been reading, there's this wonderful blog um, there, well, there's this wonderful phrase, right? This quote of like, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you first must invent the universe. Yeah, it was Carl Sagan, right? Right, exactly. You know, and um, and so that right, and so if you're trying to build a, a secondary universe, you do need to use history. You do need to use the real world. You have to have a foot in the real world to make a new world because otherwise what do you do? You know, where does the reader even begin? The reader can't understand, um, you know, even the, the ways in which it's not like the real world are what tell the reader, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. What is going on. And otherwise, so, so you do, I think have to be, have to be grounded um, when, whenever you're making, um, whenever you're telling fantasy, obviously it, it still has to make sense. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. It's that uh, it, it's it's enough to uh, you have to you have to give the reader something to hold on to, uh, so that they can slip into your alien feeling fantasy world in some way. And sometimes it's not a very big jump, you know. And sometimes it's a massive jump. Yeah. And the the bigger you want that jump to be, the more you're going to have to work on every all the other structures and everything that keep a reader kind of invested. Right. Right. And it's it, it can be difficult, but it's also, you know, it's also super rewarding when you get that balance right. Right. So I, uh, I, I like to kind of try to wrap up these conversations by asking everybody the same question, uh, totally out of left field. Okay. What's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Um, last thing I ate that blew my mind. Um, like, uh, I mean, I like to cook actually. Um, but the, the thing that blew my mind, um, it's, it's actually not a single thing. There's a restaurant here in New York called Young Sick, um, which is sort of like modern Korean inspired cuisine. If you go, ever go to a Korean restaurant, they usually start by giving you lots of sort of pickles and kimchi at the beginning. And so this restaurant, they changed it. So they served you like five amuse-bouche. Um, and I cannot actually tell you right now what any of them were, but um, they were all just unbelievable. It was sort of like each one was sort of like a different bite. And you could see the origin. You could see like the, the, the connection to the kind of thing that you would have been given in like a traditional set menu. Um, but, but it was all just completely different. And that was, that, that sort of blew my mind. I really love that. You know, that again, it was in conversation. So, uh, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's, that sounds great. I, um, I, I became obsessed, uh, last fall with, um, uh, Michael, Michael Palin's work on, uh, kind of like his, he, he does this amazing, these amazing books on, on the way we eat food and, and do drugs and all these other things. And I became totally obsessed with these ideas of pleasure as community, um, and community building. And I just, uh, it's, it, it's a weird sort of like <laughs> near religious experience for me. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you know, I mean, I do think food obviously is one of those other things that really builds um, community as well, right? You know, gathering people around a table, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, having something to just sit down and talk about. I mean, that's why you go out for lunch with your friends, right? Like, yeah. it's just a, it's a base. I absolutely love that. Yeah. That was author Naomi Novik. Thanks so much to Naomi for taking the time to chat. You can find links to her website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.